0: You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Did someone say cheers? <laughs> it's good to see everybody. How are we doing? Happy Sunday. I like the energy room. Yes, you can feel that, right? Some good stuff. I have to uh, have a couple things before I get in lesson today. One's a confession. Um, I think Brian shared a confession a couple weeks ago, so I'm just following that lead. You know, uh, my son had his last basketball game for the season, the championship game. Right? Entire season, I'm praying to God that he's going to score a point. First time he's ever played. He's playing against a lot of experienced players. All the dads are over six feet, and then there's Rhett. You know, like five nine, <laughs> Caucasian Mexican. Just you know, hey everybody, and um. <laughs> Very last game, my son gets a rebound, puts it up, and gets his two points. Yes. The confession part was that I was faithless. <laughs> Didn't believe, so, but amen. Has nothing to do with the lesson, but some good stuff. Um, we are finishing up. This is the uh, last sermon of this seven-part series entitled God With Us as we've gone through the book of Matthew. Have you guys enjoyed going through the book of Matthew so far? Some good stuff, right? Um, We're going to recap in a sec before we get into the uh, Tim Mackey Bible Project um, video that we've kind of been playing. This is to kind of cover all that we've done to this point. So it'll recap chapters 1 through 13, get a little more into the last 14 through 28. Today I will be covering specifically chapters 26 through 28. So this is some heavy stuff. If you've read through the Gospels, once you get to the end of the book of Matthew, it's that final week of Jesus' life. And so if, if, you know, I'll show you in a sec the headings. The headings are very intense, and you can see a lot of things going on that are going to kind of stir our hearts this morning. So I just want to prep that with, with the understanding that it's going to go a little deep emotionally today, okay? So be ready for that. Um, that being said, a couple announcements. Uh, one I'm very excited about, a couple I'm actually very excited about. Singles in the House, where are you at? That was good enough why well, I don't need to do it a second time, so that was good. Uh, this Wednesday, our singles group is hosting our, our regional monthly service entitled Elevate. Yes, this is the first time that we've hosted this, and in, in who knows how long? How long has it been? Years. Years. <laughs> years. Long time ago. Um, has not been years. Very excited about this. Uh, it'll be right here at SDA Building. Food will be provided at 6:45, so when you come off work, we're going to feed you as well. Okay. Yeah. So don't show up at 7.30 with a burrito in your hand. Don't do that, okay? Um, And there'll be some more announcement about Kappa stuff that's coming up as well, so I won't steal that thunder. Um, That being said, the next seven minutes or so are going to be this intro uh, with the Tim Mackey Bible Project video, so please listen intently.
1: The Gospel According to Matthew. In the first video, we saw how Matthew introduced Jesus as the Messiah from the line of David, and as a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and also as Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. After Jesus announced and taught about the arrival of God's kingdom, and after he brought the kingdom into day-to-day life among the people of Israel, we saw that Jesus was accepted by many, but rejected by others, especially Israel's religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so the big question is, how is this conflict between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? The next large section, chapters 14 through 20, explore all the different expectations people have about the Messiah. So Jesus keeps healing sick people, and twice he even miraculously provides food for these huge crowds in the desert. One's made up of Jewish people, and the other is a non-Jewish crowd. And this sign, it's very similar to what Moses did for Israel in the wilderness. And so all these people are excited about Jesus. They think he's the great prophet and the Messiah but not the religious leaders. Their view of the Messiah is built on passages like Psalm 2 or Daniel chapter 2 about a victorious Messiah who's going to deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. And from their point of view, Jesus, he's a false teacher. He's making blasphemous claims about himself. And so there are stories here about them increasing their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus, he withdraws and he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah because it is not what anybody expects. So Jesus asks his disciples, chapter 16, he says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer, it seems. He says, well, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. But then it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military power. And Jesus challenges Peter, saying that, yes, I am going to become king, but through a different way. And so Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the messianic king would suffer and die for the sins of his own people. And so Jesus, he was positioning himself as a messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant and who would lay down his life for Israel and the nation's. Well, Peter and the disciples, they mostly just don't get it. And so Jesus enters into the fourth block of teaching, followed by a series of teachings after that. And these are all about the upside-down nature of Jesus' messianic kingdom, which turns upside-down all of our value systems. So in the community of the servant king, you gain honor, by serving others. And instead of getting revenge, you forgive and do good to your enemies. And in Jesus' kingdom, you gain true wealth by giving your wealth away to the poor. To follow the servant Messiah, you must become a servant yourself. In the next section, we watch the two kingdoms clash, Jesus' kingdom and that of Israel's leader. Jesus comes to Jerusalem for Passover riding in on a donkey, and the crowds are hailing him as the Messiah. And Jesus immediately marches into the courtyard of the temple, and he creates this huge disruption that brings the daily sacrifices to a halt. His actions speak louder than words here. As Israel's king, Jesus was asserting his royal authority over the temple, the place where God and Israel met together. And in Jesus' view, the temple was compromised by the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders. And so here he's challenging their authority, and naturally, they're deeply offended. And so they try to trap Jesus and shame him in public debate, and they fail. So they end up just determining to have him killed. In response, Jesus delivers his (coughs) final block of teaching. He first offers this passionate critique of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And then he weeps over Jerusalem and its rejection of God and his kingdom. Then Jesus withdraws with the disciples and he starts telling them what's going to happen. He's going to be executed by these leaders. But in doing so, they're going to create their own demise. Because instead of accepting Jesus' way of the peaceful kingdom, they're going to take the road of revolt against Rome. And so Jerusalem and its temple are going to be destroyed. But, Jesus says, that is not the end of the story. He's going to be vindicated after his death by his resurrection. And one day, he'll return and set up his kingdom over all nations. And so in the meanwhile, the disciples need to stay alert and stay committed to just announcing Jesus and his kingdom and spreading the good news. And so with all of that ringing in the disciples' ears, the story comes to its climax. That night, Jesus takes the disciples aside and he celebrates a Passover meal with them. The Passover retells the story of Israel's rescue from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And then Jesus takes the bread and the wine from this meal as new symbols, showing that his coming death would be a sacrifice that would redeem his people from slavery to sin and evil. After the meal, Jesus is arrested. He's put on trial before the Sanhedrin, a council of Jewish leaders. And they reject his claim to be the Messiah. They charge him with blasphemy against God. Then Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate. And he thinks Jesus is innocent, but he gives in to the pressure from the Jewish leaders and he sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. So Jesus is led away by Roman soldiers and crucified. Now you'll notice right here in this section that just like Matthew did in the opening chapters, he increases the number of references to the Old Testament. He's trying to show that Jesus' death was not a tragedy or a failure. Rather, it was the surprising fulfillment of all of the old prophetic promises. Jesus came as the servant Messiah, spoken of by Isaiah. He was rejected by his own people, but instead of judging them, he is judged on their behalf, bearing the consequences of their sin. So the crucifixion scene, it comes to a close and Jesus' body is placed in a tomb. But the book ends with a surprising twist, the last chapter. The disciples, they discover on Sunday morning that Jesus' tomb is empty. And then all of a sudden people start seeing Jesus alive from the dead. And the book concludes with the risen Jesus giving a final teaching called the Great Commission. Jesus says that he is now the true king of the world. And so he sends his disciples out to all nations with the good news that Jesus is Lord and that anyone can join his kingdom by being baptized and by following his teachings. And echoing all the way back to his name, Emmanuel, God with us from chapter 1, Jesus's last words in the book to his disciples are, I will be with you. It's a promise of Jesus's presence until the day he finally returns. And that's the gospel according to Matthew.
0: Some good stuff, right? Good stuff. Let's continue. (coughs) Excuse me. Get my frog in my throat. So uh, one of the points that we made, (coughs) excuse me, gosh. I think I'm good now. Okay, here we go. Um, one of the themes that we mentioned was mamzer and mamzer, right? So this idea is uh, upside-down uh, kingdom, upside-down king. And this was the thought of an unapproved Torah-observed birth. So if I was an Israelite woman, and let's say I slept with a non-Israelite man, that that child would not be, let's say, you know, legitimate in the eyes of the Torah, right? So we're not so much focusing on that technical version or term, if you will, but very much the romanticized definition that we're thinking about this upside-down kingdom, this upside-down king that's very different, that those that you would think that would be on the outside of this kingdom are actually in, those that you would think to be on the inside of the kingdom are actually out. And you'll see this theme that we mentioned uh, throughout the course of the book of Matthew. Title of today's lesson, To the End of the Age. To the End of the Age. Now, again, this is the final week of Jesus' life, and you can look how jam-packed it is with different events that have gone on. Um, I'm not going to touch on too many of these, but you can see many of these refer to suffering, um, some type of betrayal, uh, death, and then more death. Um, it gets really happy at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but prior to that, you can feel the, the intensity of, of what's going on. So a couple things I want to mention before we get to Matthew 28. This is uh, Jesus before the Sanhedrin, right? So the Sanhedrin was uh, the governing, the ruling party of the Israelites. So you had the Pharisees that Jesus had been inter- interacting have a lot of discussions the past three years, right? The Pharisees are the ones that are trying to discredit Jesus' ministry, and he has his back and forth with them for, the, for that term, period. Uh, the Sadducees were those that were kind of in charge of the temple. So they had a lot of the money. Not every uh, priest was a Sadducee, but every Sadducee was a priest. And this specifically would be at least it's considered to be the high priest's house, right? So you have the Sanhedrin of 72, 30 to 31 Pharisees, and, or 35, 36 Pharisees, 35, 36 Sadducees, and then you have this informal group, this informal group that's led by the high priest that has these uh, chief priests that are Sadducees as well. That's where the money's at. And you can see by this place, this is actually just a model, right, a picture of a model of the main wing of what is thought to be the high priest's house. So when Jesus was brought and arrested and they had this trial, this is likely, it looked like it was probably something in here. This place had 17 rooms. This is only a portion of it. So all the opulence, the money, you can see where it was going. It was with the Sadducees, it was with those who controlled the temple. Jesus went to the temple, right? In, in that previous uh, video that we learned and uh, uh, Brian talked about last week, and he started overturning those money tables, right? He was messing with Sadducee money. He was messing with the legitimacy of their authority. They didn't like that, right? Jesus went back and forth with the Pharisees for three years and still lived. He went back and forth with the Sadducees for guess how long? One week. week, And that was a wrap. The opulence, the power, they're protecting. They're very much like, kind of like a religious mafia, right? So they were. They 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 had the temple guard. So the temple guard was their bodyguards and their hitmen. They had power about a hundred years before um, Roman rule came into play. So you had King Herod with, with Jesus' time, and then you had his dad, who was also Herod. Uh, he essentially kind of auctioned out the priesthood and said, hey, I'm, I made this deal with Rome. Uh, I'm in control. You want to be you know, the chief priest in charge? Uh, highest bidder wins. Family of a new one, these seven families are controlling. It is a mafia-type family with their guards controlling the temple that Jesus took on. These final days are intense, right? And there's a couple quotes here in in, in Matthew 26. My goal in reading these is our hope is, and it's almost like kind of like an extended cross study, we have to go there emotionally. When you're reading Matthew 26 and 27, one of the challenges, and especially if you've been in church for a long time, or you've seen the bumper stickers, or you wore the cross, or you have the tattoo, is is the familiarity of the cross. When I read it, you know, and I've, you know, to my chagrin, I've read it countless times, right, and it's done nothing, it was like, oh, that's a great story. Oh, that's intense. I was going through this week. Man, I was crying like uh, my dog passed away. I mean, it was so intense. You know, your dog, really? It's not the same level. But you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's not even close. But, um, you know, this, this, oh, gosh, it's so deep. I want to take you there this morning. So allow yourself to feel these emotions. Trust me, you will get happy at the end. You'll get all excited. But for right now, 26 and 27, feel it. Amen? It says things like this in 26. Then he said to them, this is the garden of Gethsemane. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's literally sweating blood at this point. It's a medical condition. Stay here and keep watch with me. Moving on. Now, the betrayer had a rage, a signal with him. Betrayer being Judas, Judas being with him for three years. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. Greetings, Rabbi. Mm, hurt the heart a little bit. And kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Moving on, this is the time with the Sanhedrin. So they brought him in that kind of that backdoor high priest place where it's this unofficial trial that broke about 15 commands of of Jewish trial law. What do they say after he says that basically you're going to see me in, in heaven in the right hand of God? Just proclaiming who Jesus was proclaiming who he is. This was their response. He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesied to us, Messiah. Who hit you? 27. Two rebels were crucified with him. One in on his right, one in on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days. Jesus said this. He was referencing himself. They thought he was talking about the actual building. Clearly he wasn't. Save yourself. Come down for the cross if you are the son of God. The same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. That chief priest group. Same ones that set this whole thing up. They're right there at the cross. The ones that beat him and said, prophesy, who hit, who hit you? Tell us. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from now from that cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels were crucified with him, also heaped insults on him. This is hard to relate to because many of us have never experienced that type of rejection, that type of pain, that type of suffering. And all, all of us have no idea what it means to be part of a, a sacrificial system in Eastern society. So when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, unless you have some type of biblical understanding, especially nowadays, it's going to be a very difficult thing to relate to. Why is Jesus dying on a cross? God set it up for the Israelites. He made it very clear. He talked about sacrificing lambs and goats and, and different things, the sprinkling of the blood, to cover over or atonement for the sins of the people, that they had to follow this law with 600 plus commands, and in doing so you would find out unequivocally that you would fall short. Your best efforts were null and void. At some point in time, you're going to mess up, and you're going to become a lawbreaker. So this idea of atonement and covering over their sins, sprinkling the blood that Jesus wanted to be with his people. They built a temple so he could be with the people, but there was something that they had to do in order to cover over their sins. So they would kill an animal, sprinkle the blood. They understood this concept. Jesus was the perfect atonement. The sacrifice for once and for all, that no longer, again, would you have to do anything related to animals, bulls, goats, and rams, and sprinkle blood so we can be forgiven, that we now have forgiveness of sins once and for all. But we have to go to places, first in our heart, that are difficult. I think of an analogy oftentimes that resonates with me. You may have heard it before. And it's a little, it's kind of dark, but it very much encapsulates, I should say, what God has done for us. I have three beautiful children. What do you think about this? They are gorgeous. Well, they are, ma'am, biracial angels, if you will. <laughs> Love my kids. It's because moms involved is why my kids are gorgeous. Yes. Thank you, Jackie. I think you contributed, right? Yeah. Uh, amen for fifty percent of the gene pool, right? <laughs> <laughs> amen. I digress. Let's get back to the point. Um, here we go. All right, follow me on this one. In our house, right, here's the analogy, someone breaks in. Three beautiful children. They kill my oldest. I see it, I go after that person, I kill them. What's that called? Revenge, Revenge, right? I got it, you killed my family, I take you out. Same scenario, person comes to my house, breaks in, kills my firstborn, my beautiful son, gets away. Eventually authorities find him. They arrest him, they put him on trial, whether it's you know capital punishment or life in prison, whatever it is. What's that called? Justice. Justice. Same scenario. Person breaks into my house, kills my oldest son. He doesn't go to jail, but on the contrary, I help him reform his life. Give a place, give him a place in my home. I call him my son. What is that? It's grace. It's exactly what God does for us. Here's the truth. You're a murderer. Oh, right, I never killed anybody. Yes, you did. You killed Jesus Christ. You're a robber. I'm not a robber. Yes, you are. You've robbed God of the time that he's given you. Everything that we think we're not, this comparative morality, at least I'm not like that person, grab it and throw it out the window. We all need the grace of God. Every single one of us. When you think lowly of yourself, when you're in touch with your sin because of what Jesus did on the cross, then you're ready. You're ready to start allowing God to work in your life. Here's a saying I wrote. Understand the gravity of your own depravity. What's the consequences for sin? Death. Death price that was paid you've heard it over and over again but does it resonate does it motivate does it empower you to change what does this do for you oh red i'm a murderer oh my gosh i feel bad about myself now now i'm going to go in this downward spiral does it give you worldly sorrow does it give you a pity party do you want some cheese with that wine or does it make you feel like you can tackle anything in life because of the cross of christ Continuing on, it's a little bit of a trip down memory lane. So it's interesting, right? So Jesus dies. He raises from the dead. A lot of people have died for what they believe in. The beautiful thing about the Messiah is he actually woke up. There's more to this story. It's why we worship him as such. And so we're going to read this for a little bit. This is in Matthew 28, verse 5. It's a trip down memory lane. Then the angels, the angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said... Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Right after this, actually, Jesus appears to the woman again and gives a similar message, telling the disciples to go to Galilee. Now, they're in Jerusalem at this point, right? So let's pull this up right here. Um, here is Jerusalem, right there. Galilee is all the way at the top. You can see that. See a galley. So this is like an 80-mile trek, right? I always thought, generally speaking, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave his disciples his charge, and then kind of everybody left. Jesus rose from the dead, then he told his disciples to go travel 80 miles. So they had this journey. I think of this, in this journey to almost like kind of like the Facebook memories. You guys get those memories in Facebook that pop up? One of my favorite ones is my, uh, my eight-year-old son when he was maybe like three months and he's doing this like E.T. thing with his fingers. You know when kids start becoming conscious of the fact that they can control their fingers? And so he does this like Elliot moment where he touches his fingers and he's smiling. I get this memory every single year that pops up. I love it. I imagine what the disciples are like going through these towns and going through these cities where, they, where Jesus had done perform miracles. Where Jesus had preached the word. Where they had been sent in this 80-mile trek of kind of this trip down memory lane before they get to Galilee. Jesus, when they finally get there, we don't know what mountain it is. I I wish I could say I knew. I don't. Scholars have no idea. But I'm sure it's a significant place that would have some spiritual meaning going back to our different chapters. He gives them this charge after this trip down memory lane. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, and I think many of you have heard this before, but pretend it's the first time. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And the church said, Amen. A couple things that pop up, right? Jesus rose from the dead. You had Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas is like, well, unless I see the wounds in his hands and feel on his side, I don't believe. Thomas got to do that, right? But what does it say in verse 17? They worshiped him, but some still doubted. Even at this moment, they're still unsure. Is this Jesus? Are we going? What's going to happen next? A lot of fear and uncertainty and trepidation. It's good to know this. The doubt is acceptable for commissioned disciples of Jesus. God is not expecting you to be all prepared and believe every single promise and every single character of God. He just wants us to be willing to go. It's going to be scary. You're going to have to change. You're going to do things that stretch you out and put you in comfortable places. The very nature of Christianity is so sacrificial. That's terrifying in and of itself. I mean, if you grab just that portion of Christianity, which is really the foundation, and push that sacrifice to whatever level uh, Jesus did, which is all of it, isn't that a little scary? Like, well, where would I live? What would I do? What would be my job? Like, it puts everything into question, right? So there's going to be some doubt and trepidation, trepidation. I say, that's okay. That's fine. Go and make. Sister shared a story uh, this week with the, my wife and I, which is really interesting, right? Go is difficult when you have three kids, full-time job, and all these different things. You're like, where do I go? Well, Red, I go exactly where my schedule tells me to go. <laughs> I got some time in the morning, and then I have this block of time that's gone because of work, and then I eat, spend time with my kids, and then I maybe, whatever, read a little book and watch a little Netflix, and I go to sleep. Don't have a lot of time. Jam-packed. But as you go, make. The story that I heard that I really liked this week was your sister, Paulette, the one with the vocals. Just amazing. Man. I think we're all familiar. She shared this story about how she got in a car accident and her, and her vehicle was totaled. She talked with a person post-accident, right? It's like, wait a minute. This individual looks familiar. I think I've seen her before. I think I've seen her at Trader Joe's. I did see her at Trader Joe's about a week or two ago. And they start talking. Paulette shares her faith with this person post-accident. Think about that for a second. What's your response when you get in a car accident? (laughs) Are you thinking to talk to the person about Jesus? I've been in a couple, and I can say much to my chagrin, No. What's the point? The point is, wherever you go, make disciples. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whatever's going on, we can't be that busy that the commission of God is, oh, you know what, I just have to focus in this moment of what's going on, and that's most important. No, it's not. You're at work to glorify God. That's why you're there. It might be a long-term relationship that you build. You might not be super vocal and talk about Jesus so you get fired the first week. Completely appreciate that. But wherever you go, we make. And if you have to free up your schedule in order to make, then free it up. Do the things that make your heart feel life for God. And I'd be remiss to think that we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, do not get excited about the Great Commission. If we don't get excited about the glory of God and helping people to know God, who will? It's a small group. Baptizing and teaching. My wife and I had the opportunity to go to Flagstaff. Flagstaff. What's Flagstaff? Flagstaff. It's a new place. You're welcome. Uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, last weekend. So encouraging. We got to see the faith of disciples who would come from different places, East Coast, South. Uh, the Winklers had been there and led groups for periods of time, sacri- making serious sacrifice to be there. And you could see the faith of the people there, the, the, the focus that they were there for the specific purpose to baptize and teach. Baptizing is not a dirty word. Some of us might feel that way depending on our church history. It's perfectly okay to have the mindset that you want to help people to know God and that you want them baptized. Can I get an amen for that one? It is perfectly fine. to. This is one of our kind of issues that we had in the past, but we don't anymore. You baptize, you teach, right? You help people to know God, but you're not just about converting them. You're about walking with them. When someone comes to our fellowship, this is a lifelong commitment that we will love you as long as you're here. And guess what? When you leave, if you do or don't, we're still going to love you. You know why? Because it's about the family of God. We baptize. We teach. It's what we do. The Flagstaff Church, it was so encouraging because you could see the unity of it. We have a mission, people. We have a mission. It has not gone away. There's a reason why we don't teleport uh, right, right after you get baptized, right? Alex is getting baptized today. Amen. <laughs> Exciting stuff. But right after she gets dumped and comes back out the water, she's not going to Star Trek herself up to heaven. It's not going to happen. I mean, if she does, that'd be pretty. I'd be like, whoa, oh my God, wow. Most spiritual person on the planet. Amen. But we have a mission. Do you still have a mission? Do you feel like you have a mission? We're here for a reason. People don't know God. There's a religious world that teaches people about God. Kind of. Are we going to become a religious world that maybe knows the truth but then doesn't do anything with it? Are we going to be people that actually have the conversations, that put ourselves out there, that put our hearts out there, that open up our schedules, that helping people to know God, matters to us. That it's one of the things that characterizes his fellowship, and that's okay to say. It is. It's why the Flagstaff Church is so encouraging. It's why I believe it's going to grow and new great things for God, because you could see them unified under this premise. Jesus says at the very end, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. What does the presence of God do for you? that sink in for a sec what does the presence of god in your life do for you does it embolden you to proclaim the kingdom of god jesus knew they were going to face trials it's not going to be all blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven and and, and golden fields every single point of the journey we understand there's going to be highs and lows lefts and rights and ups and downs and jesus promises you know what To his disciples, who he literally said, you're going to die. You're going to suffer and die, but you know what? I will be with you every single step of the way. Does having God in your life make you feel a sense of, in the spirit of Proverbs 28, 1, the righteous are as bold as a lion? Being bold doesn't mean being some religious weirdo that has a sign telling everybody's going to go to hell. I have no problem saying using the term weirdo. I know it's whatever slang, but it's true. But being bold does mean that you open your hearts to anyone everyone. Amen. Being bold does mean that you're willing to have conversations with people, cold contact. Yeah. Philip went to the chariot. Why was Philip at the chariot? He's like, I don't know yet, but I'm about to find out. Next thing you know, oh, look, hey, there's scriptures. Oh, what are you reading? Okay, let's have a conversation. Yeah. Clearly, God still does that in disciples' lives, Yes. That's why Paulette shared her faith after an accident. <laughs> do we do that? Come on. Does the Spirit of God embolden you to talk to anyone and everyone to open up your life, not in some religiously awkward way, but with the love of Christ? Remember, just in Matthew chapter one, just as Jesus came as baby in Bethlehem, this manger, saying the term Hebrew Emmanuel, God with us. Let us remember. As we close out the book of Matthew, that God is still and for will ever be with us. Amen. Lean into communion in Matthew 26. Jesus is going through and having the Passover meal with his disciples. And you can see the correlation that was lined out in the Tim Matthew Bible Project. This Passover lamb, right? This blood that was shed on a doorpost so the angel of death would pass over the Israelite houses in Egypt and their firstborn would be spared. That Jesus, having this Passover meal with his disciples, saying, you know what? I am that lamb without blemish. My blood was shed on a post for you. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave disciples, saying, take it and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. This new covenant, right? This new promise which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. As you take the bread and the juice this morning, let us reflect that we have an amazing king in this upside-down kingdom of which we're a part, that God is with us from now to the end of the age, And that we have all the motivation we need through the cross of Christ to live out this glorious life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. We are unworthy servants, Father. We do not deserve to be in your presence. We do not deserve to have a relationship with you, God. But yet you see fit. You see fit to love us in such a way that is supernatural, is otherworldly. We thank you, God, that you are with us. We thank you, God, that you allow us to participate in this new kingdom under your authority and lordship. We pray, God, that we believe and know that you are with us, that we proclaim your glory, proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the gospel to a lost world. And first and foremost, God, that we start with our own lives. We thank you so much, God. We praise your son's most holy and perfect name. Amen. Amen.